Father God, we come before you with a hard topic. At least in our culture, it's hard to grapple with a grasp, and many times we don't know how to answer questions well. And I hope tonight you give us the knowledge to turn into great conversation with our friends. Um, Lord, that you would give us courage to boldly speak where there might be ignorance and boldness to speak where there might need to be love in the midst of pain. Um, Lord, help us answer this problem well. And it is in your son's name I pray. Amen. So, tonight's the problem of evil. Um, I put part one on the Instagram post. I might do part two, um, but we'll see. I'm still kind of wrestling how I want to move to the next section or if we just move to our science uh, section of the series next. So you'll know that in the next couple weeks because we won't have you back next week. Um, so last week, we covered not only the Christian response to suffering, but we, res- we covered all, com- all cultures' responses to suffering. We examined American culture and its great deficiencies with dealing with the issue of suffering, and we examined how Christianity answers the difficulties with suffering. If you missed last week, it's on Apple Podcasts. You can find it if you uh, put in the search bar, Yak, Frisco, Youth Ministry, A.J. Swanson, any of those things should eventually pull it up. So the reason we started there instead of just addressing tonight's topic of the problem of evil, is because before evil is a philosophical issue, it is a practical crisis. So addressing the crisis in our response seemed logical. Today, we move to the philosophical problem of evil. And we do so with last week's discussion in mind. We're going to refer a lot to last week's discussion as well. So before we get to the actual problem... Let me inform you or remind you of how we got here. Remember from last week that most cultures understood suffering as a, rele- as a relevant and important chapter in the stories of their culture and in their personal experiences, except naturalism. So consequently, the problem of evil as you deal with it on the high school and middle school campuses today was not a popular issue until after the Enlightenment. And in the history of mankind, that's really relatively a small amount of time. But it being recent doesn't mean that it doesn't need to be addressed. More ink has been spilled on this topic in Christianity than most other topics in Christianity over the course of the past really about 200 years. And because there's so much there, it can be a daunting issue, a big issue, and we want to kind of shrink it, and I'm going to try to make it as simple as I can for you tonight, okay? Can you run this? I just need to leave this out for you. I just forget every week. Thank you. So let's get to the problem of evil and how it relates to God. So there are two arguments to the problem of evil. They go like this. It's your first fill in the blank. It's there so you can clearly see it at the front of your page. Any God who is all-powerful and all-good would be expected to stop horrendous evil and suffering. Since he would not only want to prevent it, he would have the perfect ability to do so. Yet, evil does indeed exist and persist. Therefore, this all-powerful and loving God 
either cannot exist or probably does not exist. The last sentence hints at a very important point, and that is that there are two forms of this argument, okay, from against God from evil. The first is called the logical problem. Everyone say logical problem. And this seeks to prove with certainty that there is no God in the face of evil. It's the logical problem. The second one is the evidential argument. Everyone say evidential. Evidential. Argument. So the evidential argument, that gives reasons that there probably is no such God in light of evil. So the difference is that the logical problems deals with dismissing God necessarily, like it automatically removes him. And the evidential problem deals with dismissing God probability. So probably, he probably doesn't exist because there's an amount of evil in the world. And we're going to mainly deal tonight with the evidential problem. Most people don't even hold to the logical problem anymore because certainty isn't a necessity in a culture that holds to relative truth. And we discussed that in week two and three. Just know that for years, the argument against God from evil was seen as a philosophical truth until a philosopher named Alvin Plantinga came along and answered it. Now, if you ask most philosophers on the academic and university campuses, they would say that the logical problem of evil is dead. No one actually holds, or very few academics hold, that the uh, logical problem of evil disproves God anymore. No one makes those claims. However, people still hold to the evidential argument and hold that God probably doesn't exist because of evil. Before we get into this, we need to be reminded of something we touched briefly on last week, and this has everything to do with our argument, so pay attention. Human beings, up until 100 years ago, viewed themselves as porous. Okay, AJ, that's weird, right? Like, what does that mean? What does it mean that we're porous? What that means is that the culture around us, the family around us, the religious organization around us, Whatever power, the king around us, the church around us, the whatever group around you poured into you purpose, meaning, and knowledge of how to deal with suffering. So we were a porous people. We see that still in many Eastern cultures, like China and India. If you go to India... You do what your family tells you to do. You marry the person your family says you should marry. You hold to the truths that your family holds to, not necessarily because there's logical reasons behind it, but because your family dictates it. So they're a porous people. You, on the other hand, live in what is known as the imminent frame which is an outcome of the Enlightenment, so a period about 200 years ago, where people started to look at the world differently than what they did before. And what is imminent frame? It's your next one on the blank. Imminent frame, F-R-A-M-E, don't put a P-H there, no one one does that. Imminent frame is the belief that we determine meaning and purpose within ourselves. So a porous culture, the culture around me determines purpose for me. And in an imminent frame culture, I, in myself, determine purpose for me in the midst of the culture around me. Do you see the difference? 
And you guys have grown up so much in the imminent frame that you don't even realize that this is a way of thinking that really is not common within the history of mankind. You, Ari, since you were five years old, people have asked you, what do you want to be when you grow up? Right? That's a natural thing. And that is impressing upon you this idea of imminent frame. Namely, that you get to decide your destiny. That it's not the other things around you that determine it. You do you. You follow your heart. YOLO. Live your truth. And every other cultural slogan that exists, right? And all the other logical fallacies that play out on cable television, social media, and magazines daily. And one of the huge drawbacks to eminent frame mentality is this. Listen, if you can see no good reason for a particular instance of suffering, if you can't see it, God could not have any justifiable reasons for it either. If evil does not make sense to us, well, then evil simply does not make sense. There are two ways to answer the problem of evil. A theodicy and a defense. A theodicy deals with the logical problem, a defense deals with the evidential argument. In summary, a theodicy attempts to explain all evil, while a defense gives simple reasons to why it's possible that a good God exists and evil also exists. In the past, if you've dealt with me before, I have done my best to give you a theodicy in which you could deal with the logical problem of evil. And I love theodicies. Theodicies, I think, are a good thing. And as you guys age and, and, and read and learn, I think it is a good thing for you to learn however tonight, because most people don't need a, they don't hold the absolute truth. I feel like giving you good questions and arguments to um, give others in the face of the evidential argument would be most beneficial and I think intellectually satisfying for you. So that's where we're going to be tonight. Um, so what might this look like practically? Okay? I'm going to tell you this after my water break. It's good water still. Peter Van Inwagen suggested that a person using evil as an argument against the existence of God might say something like this. If there was an omnipotent, moral, perfect being who knew about the evils we know about, well they wouldn't have arisen in the first place and he'd have prevented their occurrence. Or if for some reason he didn't do that, he certainly removed them the instant they began to exist. But we observe evil and very long-lasting ones. So we must conclude that God does not exist. I'm sure many of you have heard this on the high school and middle school campus or at the workplace or at the mall or on social media or anywhere else that people exist. And the short, the argument is this. For those of you that like syllogisms and logic, this is the argument. It's on the paper for you. A, a truly good God would not want evil to exist. An all-powerful God would not allow evil to exist. B, evil exists. C, therefore, a God who is both good and powerful cannot exist. That is the argument that you might be given. But the believer in God could respond 
by pointing out that the argument against God from evil has a hidden premise. What's a premise? Logical moment. Okay, fun times. Um, I just gave you a logical argument in A, B equals C. Okay? So A is a premise, B is a premise, C is a conclusion. It's how you make an argument. Back in the day when they used to do political debates, this is how they looked like. Now if you turn on a political debate, none of this exists. Okay? It's infuriating for anyone who's taken literally a podcast lesson in logic. Okay? It's frustrating. But this is how arguments exist. Premise, 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 conclusion. You can literally have 12 premises if you want. They just have to logically follow to a conclusion. So we would say that there's a hidden premise in that argument, and this is your next fill in the blank, namely, that God does not have any good reasons to allow evil to exist. Namely, that God does not have any good reasons to allow evil to exist. I went to talk about politics to use my finger like a Joe Biden. I apologize. The believer might say, it may be that someone has a very strong desire for something and is able to attain this thing, but does not act on that desire because he has reasons for not doing so that seem to him to outweigh the desirability of that thing. So God might have reasons for allowing evil to exist that, in his mind, outweigh the desirability of the non-existence of evil. If God has good reasons for allowing suffering and evil, then there is no contradiction between his existence and that of evil. So in order for this case to fail, in order for this statement to fail, it's your next fill in the blank, the skeptic would have to reply that God could not possibly have any such reasons. But that is a very hard thing to prove. To prove you know the mind of God. It is a baller move in a debate. Okay? Well, I know God's mind, and this is what he told me. You typically can't argue with that anymore. Because they're crazy. Unless they're Jesus. But yeah, you do know the mind of God, and you win. Okay? So why do we know this? Why would the skeptic would have to reply that God could not have any possibility for any such reasons, but it would be fair to prove that? Why? We know from human experience that many times suffering does cause good. We know from human existence that many experiences of suffering cause good. Think about it. Doctors, every day, perform very painful Surgeries that do good and keep people alive and make them well. They inflict pain and suffering in order to heal. When you were a child, I'm sure this never happened to any of you, your parent might have punished you by taking away a toy, which to a child is great suffering. Great suffering. My kids know they're in trouble at night and they've been too loud in their bed and they've woken up their little sister in the room next to them when I go upstairs and I threaten to take away blankies. Just the fear creates pain and suffering. I haven't even taken them. But they are terrified that that might become a reality. Okay? 
And it's good that they do, that I might have to do that. Why? Because if I let it go on, they'd grow up to be spoiled brats. And those are the people at school that you can't stand. You're welcome. Okay? Many can point to adversity in their lives that, however excruciating, taught them lessons that helped them avoid greater suffering later. It's your next fill in the blank. This means that there is no automatic inconsistency with the existence of evil and the existence of God. Because you yourself can come up with instances where suffering and pain have benefited you. But there's so much evil, they might say. And you're right. There is so much evil. So much suffering. How could God warrant that? And when we ask that question, we're back to the idea of imminent frame. We're back to the idea of imminent frame. It's the hidden assumption along the premise. It's another premise that's hidden there in the original argument. And that's this. It's your next one in the blank. If I can't see any reasons God might have for permitting evil, then he probably doesn't have any. If I can't see any reasons God might have for permitting evil, then he probably doesn't have any. And you know this. This idea is obviously false. Remember that the argument against God from evil starts with the idea of an omnipotent God. So an all-powerful God. It says, if God is infinitely powerful, as you say, why doesn't he stop evil? But a God who is infinitely more powerful than us would also be infinitely more knowledgeable than us. So the rejoinder to the skeptic, and here's your answer to the problem of evil for your friends, is this. It's your next fill in the blank. If God is infinitely knowledgeable, why couldn't he have morally sufficient reasons for allowing evil that you can't think of? If God is infinitely knowledgeable, why couldn't he have morally sufficient reasons for allowing evil that you can't think of? It's on the, black, the back is the next one on the blank. Sorry. Some of you are like, what? I finished. Two weeks in a row of a back? How dare you? If I can't see, uh, if God is infinitely knowledgeable, why couldn't he have morally sufficient reasons for allowing evil that you can't think of? To insist that we know as much about life and history as an all-powerful God is a logical fallacy. It's a category error. That's what we call it. However, much the imminent frame of our culture would incline us to feel this way. It's your next fill in the blank. If you have a God infinite and powerful enough for you to be angry at for allowing evil, then you must at the same time have a God infinite enough to have sufficient reasons for allowing the evil. If you have a God infinite and powerful enough to be angry at for allowing evil, then you must at the same time have a God infinite enough to have sufficient reasons for allowing it. You can't have it both ways. One of the ways we can explore this, it's a fun, I love thought experiments, okay? Back in the day, me and Alec would sit around at Wendy's and we'd have these fun times. I miss your brother. He's not dead. I mean, he's in Europe. <laughs> which means he might as well be dead to us, right? Um, 
So one of the thought experiments is called the butterfly effect. Awful movie. You remember that? 2001? 2002? I forget. Imagine a ball on the crest of a hill. It's on the crest. That's the top, for those of you that didn't have that word yet in English. It's on the top of the hill. It's a big ball. Right? Big. When you sway, it means it's bigger than your hands. Okay? Just so you know. And it can roll in any direction, in any valleys, and it's thick and it's, it's, it's powerful. And whatever valley it rolls in, because it's on the crest of a mountain, right, it's going to create avalanches, it's going uh, to create destruction, right? And it's on the tallest mountain, so there's many mountains around it, right, that it can roll up there, because it's a really it's a big ball, right? It's like a bowling ball on crack, right? Like, it's just crazy, right? Okay? It's big. Can you determine which way it's going to go? <laughs> Alexis, yes, left. Because um, the wind blows. Because the wind blows left, right. You're right. Uh, the fact is we don't. We can't determine its absolute direction because there's too many variables for us to know. All we can do is guess because we have finite or limited knowledge. This is the field of chaos theory. Everyone say chaos theory. When you go home tonight and your folks are like, what'd you learn tonight? You're going to be like, chaos theory. Which sounds awesome. Okay? Let me explain a little bit of chaos theory. I like chaos theory. I just recently learned about it. Um, I originally thought it was a degree in child care, but it's not that. So in the realm of chaos theory, we have learned that the tiniest changes affect the whole. The most classical example of this stems from the butterfly effect initial analogy, which that is, the butterfly flapping its wings in China could affect the course of a hurricane in the South Pacific. Or a lot of them could. The problem is, no one can predict a butterfly's flight path. You can't look at it for any amount of time. It's nuts. Okay? So therefore, we don't know where it would go next. It's the butterfly flight. So while we might not agree with the analogy as a scientific fact, I don't believe that butterfly wings affect hurricanes. The point is this. We can agree with the principle as we look at our lives. One small change can affect everything else. One small action can lead us down a path and not only affect our lives, but consequently everyone's life around us. Ray Bradbury depict, depicted this in the famous, in his science fiction short story, a sound of thunder. In the story, a time traveler guide, Travis, is telling the time traveler, Eccles, that when he visits the past, he must be absolutely sure not to step off the metal path provided for him. Otherwise, he might do something like step on a mouse. That would mean all future descendants of that mouse, maybe millions, would disappear. That would mean that all sorts of other animals who fed on mice would starve and not have descendants. That would mean that some human beings who would have gotten those animals to eat, do not, and would lead them to move on and starve. And for one man or woman to die meant whole families, eventually whole nations, would not exist. Now think about your life. How would the senseless death of a child affect everyone else around you for the rest of your life? How would a child close to you, how would that affect you? How would that affect the way that you interact with other children? 
Those child's future friends that now will never have that child as a playmate, how will that affect them? How would have that affected that child's potential future spouse and their potential children? You see how you work on the butterfly effect in chaos theory. The limits are literally endless on one senseless act happening. We go on and on with this thought experiment, for better or for worse. Now, expand that to every human being on a planet and every decision that they make. Every one. That's a lot of possibilities. One of the things I like to do, I think it's like the actor in me. I like to like role play, right? And I love sitting around an intersection, especially on a clear day when I can see everybody. And I look at the other cars and I wonder, what story, where in the story are you? Where are you coming from? Where are you going? Who are you going to see? And why is it that our lives have literally intersected at this point? Just a small intersection. The small things affect everyone else that we come in contact with. We will never know how it all works together. But we know the one who works all things together for the good of those who love him. And not just with this life in mind, but with the new heavens and the new earth to come. We are not in a position to judge God because we don't have all the facts before us. We don't know how one's personal death and suffering affects three generations ahead of them. And I can promise you, it always does. So the answer to the problem of evil is addressing the hidden premise, namely that we know more than God. The problem of evil doesn't disprove God's existence. It It simply proves that we are finite. So the problem of evil does not disprove God's existence. It simply proves that our knowledge is limited. That's all it proves. And that evil exists, but that's it. Maybe that's part two, okay? When my cousin died, I've, I've told this story, I think it was week one. When my cousin died, my eight-year-old cousin, and I went to the funeral, my uncle gave a call to the gospel. He actually shared the gospel at his son's funeral. And that, it was at that moment that I was very turned away from God, right? That was the beginning of my walk into atheism, into hating a God that I chose not to believe in. But here's the interesting part. For 12 others that night, it was the beginning of their walk with Jesus. 12 people that night gave their lives to Christ and started to enjoy the living God that they were created to have communion with. Soon after Owen passed, my uncle left the church he was serving at. It wasn't like sin. There was nothing like that. But he decided to go down to the University of South Florida and start a ministry called Friends of Internationals, which would reach internationals on the campus of the University of South Florida in Tampa. And my guess is he probably would not have started that ministry if my cousin was still alive. And when he worked with Friends of Internationals, he worked there for almost a decade, he literally got to share the gospel with thousands of international students on and off the campus of University of South Florida. And of the thousands of people, and I mean literally thousands, Uncle Mark is one of the most bold evangelists I've ever met in my life. Hundreds of people came to know the Lord over the course of his decade working on that campus. Hundreds. And most of those international students did not stay in America. 
Most of those international students went back to China, went back to Japan, went back to India, went back to Thailand, went back to Korea, went back to Russia, went back to a lot of closed nations with what? The good news of the gospel. And many of them still give that gift of the Lord Jesus Christ to their fellow countrymen in their situations which they're currently residing. Why? Because of the senseless death of an eight-year-old child? If you're a naturalist, you have to believe that. But if God works all things together for good for those that love them, Romans 8, 28. And that death wasn't a senseless death. And when all those people who heard the gospel because of the path, the butterfly effect that that death sent that family down, when they get to heaven and they hug Jesus for the first time and embrace their Savior, they will more likely at one point or another be introduced to an eight-year-old kid who God used and who, who, who God redeemed that life, that brokenness. For his glory. But your God, you have to remember, in the midst of suffering, did not sit back and orchestrate suffering to just bring about change. God doesn't sit up there and he's like, okay, that's a bad thing, I'm going to make this good. He entered into suffering. He willingly took death on a cross He was the only perfectly innocent person to ever suffer atrocity so that you, in turn, can know the love of God and not his judgments against all evil. The God who is all-powerful and all-knowing laid down his power and knowingly took on the evil of humankind so that you might have a right relationship with him and know that all suffering is not vain but will be reconciled Let me pray for us. Father God, you are a God who has entered into evil and who has dealt with it and has promised to come back and vanquish it. Lord, may we rest on that promise. May we be reminded that we cannot have all the answers. But the Bible from Genesis 3 all the way to the end of Revelation reminds us to constantly lean and trust in you and the promises you have made to your people in the midst of suffering. May that become a reality today. May the way that we're suffering with our teachers who drive us nuts and our coaches that we don't know what they're doing half the time and our parents, which we have friction with, may all those pieces of suffering, may we be reminded that in the midst of all that suffering, you work good. And you plead with us to lean into you so that we know you. Because when we do not suffer, we are prone to think we have done it all. And that it is our works that has led to our good. May we be reminded that it is never our works that lead to our good, but it's just that you're good. And may we lean on you. In your son's name we pray.